Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week and I guide you through the show. We're almost getting to the end of summer and we're still in lockdown. So uh, two more shows before Labor Day. And uh, really delighted to welcome to today's show, Becky Honeyman, who is managing partner at Source Code Communications. Uh, Becky, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure, a fellow Brit. So always good to chat to someone from the old country. And we'll find out about your amazing success at Source Code. Um, You came over here um, in 2011, we were just hearing, and uh, when you were at Hotwire, and then you went out on your own in 2017. We're going to find out about that story. So, And we're delighted to be joined by Diana Bradley. Very rare for me. How are you doing, Diana? I'm outnumbered by Brits. You are, but you are like moving back in England now. Yeah, well, you've got a British connection, haven't you? Because your husband's British and your son's named after a British town. So, you know, it's true. We're all over this stuff. So, you are taking over. Look, yeah, Frank Washcook's having a well deserved uh, week off. So, Diana is here with us and uh, always a pleasure. PR Week, Diana. That You love that nickname, don't you? <laughs> I do. I should get my name legally changed. You should really probably should have it tattooed somewhere as yeah, well. My forehead. Um, yeah. yeah, so we'll talk to Becky, and then we're, there's so much news around. It's 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 in the dog days of August, but still so much going on. Obviously, more protests over another horrific shooting of a an unarmed black person um, up in Wisconsin, and we'll talk about that and the sports boycotts that have come from it amongst basketball and baseball teams. We'll talk about the RNC convention, which has been going on this week. And actually, it's the last day as we speak and as we record when the virtual formats. We've already got Starbucks pumpkin latte out there. Wow. And we haven't even finished summer yet. So I know Diana's got strong views on that. And uh, Edelman has appointed its first black board member, as uh, CEO Richard Edelman promised to do before the end of September. Interesting move in that Facebook CMO Antonio Lucio is stepping down, a very high-profile person and uh, very well-respected. LG has retained uh, a WPP agency team again. And TikTok, their CEO, has stepped down. So loads to chat about. But, Becky, let's start with you. Tell us about Source Code Communications. You're our boutique agency of the year, so congratulations on that. And, I know. We're uh, still yeah. reeling. Yeah, well, yeah. and your partner, Greg Monshine, has been named to our 40 under 40 list. So it's it's awards galore for the source code team. Tell it us, is. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the agency. Um, as I said earlier, you came out of Hotwire, both of you, in 2017. Talk us through why, why you made that move and what the agency really sort of concentrates on. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we are, uh, I'm not even exaggerating to say that we are still basking in the glory of these awards. Honestly, we were completely flawed and and just flabbergasted to use a Britishism, um, but completely <laughs> delighted. And and to think that we've been able to do that in, in basically three years. Um, so I don't know, I, I don't know whether you remember, but actually PR Week christened us, if you like, on the 7th of September, 2017. So we're yeah. almost exactly three years old. Yeah. Um, 
And Greg and I, you know, if you go back to those first days, Greg and I had such a wonderful experience at Hotwire. And and I worked at Hotwire in Europe and come across to New York with them. And and we are still very, very good friends with the guys over at Hotwire. Um, and and I guess the, the motivation for Greg and I wanting to set up by ourselves was just this idea that you could tell more human stories about technology. You know, the focus on the bits and the bytes of tech is all well and good. But what we really wanted to dig into is, you know, how can you make people, how can you make a consumer feel something about technology? How can you invoke an emotion? And how can you look very much at the consequences of the technologies that's being used? Um, and, And so that was really the motivation. Like, how can we be a bit more creative in the way that we tell these stories? Um, Yeah. And yeah. you're based in New York. Is Greg? Greg's on the West Coast, is that right? He is not, actually. He is oh, he's also... in New York. Oh, so you're very much... Uh, you've got 20... About, you, well, talk us through how it's been during the lockdown, because you have you grew, I think, really well in 2019, and I think you doubled your number of clients. You had got up to like $3.5 million in revenues, 22 staff. How did um, the lockdown affect things? Did you hit the buffers a bit like other firms? Did you have to do layoffs or furloughs? What was what was the impact of that? Uh, we did. I think we got off more fortunately than most, and and you know for that we are eternally grateful. Um, we um, we made we had one very short term furlough um, early on in COVID, but we had had a gangbusters but kick off to the year. So 2020, in the, the January and February of 2020, we had, we were probably doing kind of two to three pitches a week. It was, it was a, a real roller coaster. Um, and I think at the time we thought, goodness, like this, this is crazy um, in terms of the pace and, and the speed of turnaround. Um, but thank goodness that we did do that because then obviously March happened and everything locked down and the pipeline slowed down incredibly quickly. Everything kind of went to a halt. Um, I think where we were really, really lucky is that our business is fairly diverse in that we have probably 60% of the business is B2B and that comes from a bit of enterprise, a bit of fintech and, and also insights and engagement, which is kind of AI, machine learning, advertising um, and data and analytics. And then the other part of the business is consumer facing. And obviously the consumer facing businesses had a harder time of it. But we were really fortunate, I think, to be able to ride the storm. Um, we haven't been long term impacted. And, and actually, Greg and I were just talking this morning about the fact that probably, and you can probably say whether this is happening across the board, but Probably about six weeks ago, it seemed like the confidence was switched back on um, across the industry. Um, we see it from talking to industry peers, but also in terms of the kind of the flow of new RFPs and new business conversations has picked right back up. I wouldn't say quite to the level of January, February, but but it's up there again. And it feels like there are very positive conversations happening. Yeah, I think um, January, February was great for across the board. And it's a real shame that the year kind of got derailed like that. But hey, you know, we can nothing we can do about that. When you say you're pitching two or three t- uh, clients at a time, how many are you winning? You know, what's your sort of win rate? And how do you decide, you know, what to pitch and when to pitch? Because it takes a lot of energy, doesn't it? Especially for a boutique firm. 
It does. And I have to say that was a finite, I must have the caveat that that was a finite period of time at the beginning of the year. Um, uh, It's not sustainable long term, I don't think. Um, But our win rate is pretty solid. You know, we aim to have a win rate of kind of 60% plus. Um, Our win rate is always in excess of that. And I don't, I, I, I say that not to imply that we're the best pitchers that are out there. But I do think we have honed our approach to new business. We really only pitch business that we think we can do an incredible job with, um, clients that we have really strong chemistry with. And while we think, you know, if we were to win, we could do work that we're all really proud of together. And I think we, we are quite measured in our filter even before the pitch process starts. Yeah. And you talk about tech and fintech. How were those, obviously, travel, hospitality, tourism were really badly hit. How were those agencies hit uh, during the, the lockdown? Um, fintech. Um, and How tech. were those, yeah, those industries? Yeah. Yeah. I, do you know, I, I, I actually think that the, across our core technology clients, some of them have really done well out of this and I know that sounds terrible to say but some of them have really have been very quick to spy the opportunity and to execute against it um so I think on on the b2b side of our portfolio people have have kind of not just survived through this but but actually kind of prospered um through the the whole pandemic and lockdown now, you were uh, moving into your first office, I think, earlier in the year. Is that? Did you still do that? And what, what's the state of play now in terms of, you know, going back to the office and working from home, et cetera? Yeah, we, we actually, we'd been in the office for maybe five months um, when we, we took the decision to, to close. Um, and we actually closed probably about 10 days, two weeks before most people in New York, partly um, and you'll be able to attest to this, partly because I had been following very closely what had been happening across Europe. And it it struck me that for the sake of an extra week or two weeks, the exposure wasn't wasn't worth it. So we, we shut down before almost everyone else did, I think. Um, but currently, the office is there. We have a really good relationship with our landlord, thankfully. Um, <laughs> it does help. Um, and uh, I, we talked to the team just last week and we took the decision together that we're not intending to open the office or go back to the office full time until at least January 2021. Um, okay. So we will be continuing working from home for the foreseeable. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, that decision wasn't made lightly, but it was looking at we um, we surveyed all of our team anonymously to ask how they really felt about things um, and what they were really concerned about. And we looked at that plus the potential for a second wave and the potential exposure on the New York, New York subway system. And it just didn't seem like it was making the right decision for our for our team or our clients to, to go back too soon. Yeah, it's um, that's the I think that's the worry for most people, isn't it? Not so much being in the office or the commute and that and that part of it. And mm-hmm can't necessarily bring everyone back anyway so there's no point going in an office and sitting there doing um, video calls in an office rather than at home is there yeah and we've been lucky um we have not seen any drop in productivity or engagement amongst the team you know slack is is fired up constantly and is constantly wearing through and we've tried to do a lot of virtual events um 
from exercise classes to like drinks and quizzes and all manner of things over the past couple of months. Um, and so the connection between the team is still really, really good. Yeah, you've got to keep the morale up for sure. But it is, uh, look, we are a creative business. It's a team game, isn't it? And it is, it is difficult to do that virtually, I think. How have you managed to get around that? Uh, we have, I mean, I don't think we're doing anything outrageously new or untried and tested. We have indulged um, in a lot of external training for our team, both on our creative process um, and we, we actually spent a lot of time towards the end of last year developing this um, this specific kind of creative process for campaigns, which which really looks at how you frame client campaigns within w- one of the kind of basic plots of literature. So have we got a hero story? Do we w- what's our characteristic? What are the motivations of our brand as a persona in the story? So we try to be really, really, really narrative-led um, when it comes to cre- creative campaigns. And we spent a lot of time at the beginning of the year training the team on that process, um, which I think helped because everyone is working from the same starting point. Um, and other than that, you know, every single interaction that we have is video. Um, and I know that there's a there's kind of the Zoom fatigue, although I think we're on the second upswing of people loving Zoom and, and video conferencing <laughs> again. Um but every interaction that we have is is um, over video, so you can really see kind of the emotions and the the concerns on people's faces as you're going through the brainstorming process. Yeah, you've just got to keep people sane, haven't you, and be aware of their mental health and their well-being, like you said, so all that good stuff that you're doing is important. Just finally, there was an interesting piece of work you did for Everlast, which caught my eye, hashtag b no. Just quickly talk us through that one because that, that was great. It was, and it is the it's the one that I think every single person on the team wanted to work on. Um, that if that campaign could have had twenty four people on the on the client team, it definitely would have had. Um, yeah. uh, and it was just a fantastic story, right? And the, the the great thing was that the Everlast team is really open and really motivated to tell stories like this. Um, and just quickly you know, explain what it involved and what Everlast is for those that don't know. It's sort of, of course, of course. So Everlast is um, is a long-standing boxing um, apparel and equipment company. Um, they've been around for a long time, and you know when we first started talking, the concern was with with the emergence of Soul Cycle and Rumble and Orange Theory and all of these other classes. You know, where where, where was Everlast's position? particularly with younger generations who didn't have this kind of this sentiment of the iconic brand that it is. Um, So the campaign that we came up with was built on off the back of a boxing term. And and if I butcher this, don't blame me because I'm not a boxer. Um, (laughs) But but, um, there is a boxing term, which is is be first. So be first to move, be first to react, be first in the ring. Um, And all of those things make you the better boxer. uh, at the end of the day, and so we we the team worked with the Everlast team to to kind of play around with this. Well, what does be first mean today, and particularly what does it mean to millennials and younger generations? And it means breaking molds. It means breaking traditional perceptions. And um, so we actually worked with a couple of first boxers. Um, one being the first trans- transgender boxing champion. We had a first immigrant. Um, boxing champion and we pulled out these individuals who were generous enough to spend their time 
telling their story and 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 explaining why boxing had been so important to them and to their development and had enabled them to be the first of their their type, if you like. Um, and, and it was a very emotive story, um, as you can imagine. I think mm. the fact that it had this human connection meant that it it really played into the the kind of heart of the consumer and it, it, it really developed a life of its own. You know, when you think about everyone says I want a campaign to go viral, but that was one where it it, it went everywhere. Literally. It just happened. Yeah, yeah it, it went everywhere. You know, our, our media engagement was was great, obviously, and I would say that, but but it literally, you know, you were opening up any news site and the story was there. So it was just a fantastic way and it was a fantastic thing to be part of. You know, it, that's the kind of story that you want to be able to tell. You want to look back on your career and say, I, I made a bit of a difference. Yeah, no, it's great work. If anyone hasn't checked it out, do so, because it's well worth it. Great to chat, Becky, and we'll get your input on the new stories. Let's bring in PR Week, Diana. Um, staying on sport, Diana, um, obviously this horrific story of another police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha on Sunday night, and that's led to all sorts of repercussions and big sports brands making a hell of a statement, actually, last night. We're talking on Thursday here. Yes. Um, so uh, Wednesday night, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks refused to play their NBA playoff game against the Orlando Magic uh, to protest the shooting of uh, Jacob Blake. Um and that kind of started this whirlwind of all these other games being canceled. Um, the rest of the night's NBA games were canceled. Matches in the WNBA, MLB, MLS, professional tennis were all uh, canceled as well. Um, so we actually have a roundup on the PR Week site of uh, you know all the statements that came after this from the leagues. Uh, specific sports teams, politicians got involved. Um, there was even Adidas uh, put out a statement on Twitter. They said, we support all players and coaches across sports who are using their platforms to demand, to demand justice, Black Lives Matter. Um, and Gatorade also put out a statement um, on Twitter. They uh, they tweeted the video of the statement from the Bucks, and they said, this is bigger than sport. Black Lives Matter. Um, so, you know, this is this is um, this is nothing new. People, um, you know, uh, standing up for uh, this kind of thing. But, um, you know, it seems like this is a big this seems bigger somehow. Yeah, I mean, um it's difficult to believe that this sort of thing is still happening and it, it just is incredible. Very in, in, emotional interview by Doc Rivers I saw on TV just saying saying that. And um, sports people and brands really making a statement. Becky, I mean, what, what have you – that's the other thing, that obviously, that marks this summer is the whole um, racial injustice and protests around that, rightfully so, with, with people being killed, um, innocent people. What's your take on it and what – from a professional point of view, you know, how should brands um, engage here? Because, so uh, yeah, putting tweets out, that's fine. But really, they've got to go further than that, haven't they? And really back up uh, these tweets with actions. They absolutely do. And 
you know, I saw a, a quote that it, it kind of pl played on my mind a little bit. It was a, a guy, a baseball player from the Washington Nationals called Sean Doolittle. And earlier uh, in the summer, he, he was talking about the pandemic and he said sports are the reward of a functioning society. And I thought it, it's played on my mind ever since because I thought while he was talking about the pandemic, it's, it's very applicable here, I think. And whatever your politics, you know, the level of systemic racism that we're seeing and the, the, the inflection point that we're, we're at, and that's not just in the US, but, you know, we're British, Steve. You see this in the UK as well. You see it beyond. Um, but this, this level of systemic racism, I think, is inconsistent with, with what you would consider a functioning society. I think while we've seen a real shift in the sports world over the past couple of years, like if you think back to the reaction when um, Kaepernick began his protest and the consequences that he's suffered since to the situation we have today where many players and many brands are engaged in the conversation, actively supporting the conversation, I think you've already seen a big change in in the reputation if you like the reputation of of not just black lives matter but the reputation of standing for something you know we as an industry have talked about purpose for years and years and years and i think this is a real opportunity it's a real inflection point and an opportunity for brands who really have a like they really have an investment in this conversation to stand up and do what's right even if it costs them money. And I think that's way beyond a couple of tweets here and there. It's, it has to be an ongoing campaign of, of pressure, for want of a different, uh, better word. Yeah, it's, it's got to be a turning point. And um, there seems to be a vacuum of leadership. And um, it's good to see sports stars um, stepping up and taking a leadership role. And brands have to do it as well. But they have to really act on it and, and make sure their actions back up their tweets. Um, I'm looking at a quote here from our story today from Mark Short, who's Vice President Pence's Chief of Staff. He said to CNN, if they want to protest, I don't think we care. If they want to say we're not going to play more games, I don't think that's a position you're going to see us speak out on in one way or another. I'm not sure that's acceptable. I'm really not. And, and I think that, that that has got to change. I mean, we've seen other images of a 17-year-old child, really, wielding a gun uh, in the streets and shooting two people dead. Mm -hmm. uh, now, obviously, the, the the circumstances around that were, were crazy and, and and very, you know, it was a, a, a situation that was um, moving all the time. But the, the, the attitude, you, could, you if that was a black kid, I just don't think that they would have been treated in the same way. The police were handing out water to this kid and saying, thanks for helping out. That just, yeah. that just would not have happened if it was a black kid. And we've got to see some justice here in the way people are treated. Everybody should deserves to be treated the same. And, um, you know, there's a real recognition of the way black people are treated. And I think it's really come out this summer that if, if anybody didn't realise what it's like to be black in America, uh, they do now and they really have to. Have and we've got to stand up and make changes. It's 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 very important. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, let's move on to the RNC convention, Diana. We talked about the Democratic convention last week. Obviously, they're both virtual. Um, mm -hmm. 
us through what's been going on. Um, we're talking on Thursday, so it's the last day. So we're talking before the big finale, if you like. But um, yeah, talk us through it. Sure. Um, so actually, right before this podcast, um, just found some numbers out there. Um, so the first night of the virtual RNC posted 17 million Nielsen measured viewers among 11 networks. Um, so that's 14% lower than the first night of the DNC the week before, which pulled in about 19 million for the same collective networks. Um, and, uh, the RNC's first night was also down 26% from the live RNC event back in 2016, where it produced 23 million viewers. So that was interesting. Um, but yeah, it's been, uh, it's, it's been an interesting week. Um, you wanted me to talk through the format a little bit, I believe. Um, so, you know, like where it was scheduled to be held, it was scheduled to be held originally in person at the Charlotte Convention Center. Um, but then it was because of the pandemic held partly in person in Charlotte and partly remotely with speeches delivered from Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. Um, and Trump was actually criticized this week for using the White House as a backdrop for the convention. Um, but yeah, the most major TV channels have been covering it, um, and fact checking during the event. And, uh, did you want me to go into anything in particular with, with this? So, week? <laughs> I wondered what you thought Diana, as an American, what was your take on it? Um, it was quite glossily produced the, the you know, the, the RNC show and, um, yeah, for sure. with the TV background of the president and his and the people involved in it. Um, we're all learning about the different format and, and the way it works virtually. It was interesting that, for example, on the first night, Fox was cutting away from the sessions, whereas CNN was covering most of it live. So that that, that actually got a, uh, a rare positive shout out from President Trump on Twitter for CNN. So it's uh, been interesting. Becky, what do you think as uh, of the virtual conventions? And um, it's Nielsen ratings four years on are a little deceptive, aren't they? Because the way people consume media has changed so much. So you've got all the streaming and the catch-up viewing, people watching clips on social. People just consume media in a very different way, don't they? Which is very relevant to PR professionals like yourself. I do think that. And I do think that the, like, there's some interesting lessons that you can take from, from the, the contrast between the two. Um, and we were talking as a team about the RNC this this week. Um, and one of the things that I think a couple of us have been struck by was that the the Republican convention had, seems to have been produced with a a spirit of trying desperately to show business as usual as much as possible, right? Like nothing's wrong, everything's going fine. Like the in-person inter- in, uh, interactions the very normal procedures for voting in a candidate, everything would try, like it felt like they were trying to fit the traditional format or the traditional kind of agenda into this new format. Um, And whether that was to try to show that it is business as usual and it was intentional, I'm not sure. Um, But I thought it really contrasted with the DNC's kind of acknowledgement, I think, that it, it absolutely isn't and it's a completely different format. And the way that, that that it was produced as an owned content hub, I thought was really fascinating. Um, I, you know, I think there are a lot of lessons. If you're a brand 
looking at how do you engage, how do you do your user conference, how do you engage a community audience during during lockdown and during this pandemic. There were a lot of really good lessons I think that you could learn from the DNC's production, like the emotional connection, that this kind of nostalgia of having the roll call in in the different states with the different backgrounds and you know it it felt like we're all one it felt community it felt nostalgic in a or com- comforting maybe is a better word in a in a very different way um yeah yeah there was uh, very little mention of the fact that nearly 180,000 Americans have died of covid uh, during the republican convention um and it was you're right about the sort of presentation of business as usual look the, these conferences if you listen to Alex Conant, actually, from Firehouse Strategies, he's on our coffee break segment this week. He used to be the press secretary at the RNC, and he was comms director on Marco Rubio's presidential campaign. So he has a fascinating insight into it. And he was talking about how these things are scripted to the nth degree, even in a live format. You know, So um, the, the, the idea of having everything pre-produced and scripted it's still the same even live, although it's, it's slightly different and you don't get the audience reaction quite so much. But uh, what he was saying also was that all the stuff that goes on around the conference, you know, the, the deals in darkened rooms, if you like, or the lobbying, the, the you know, people getting their interests in front of lawmakers and, and basically people having fun, right, you know, hanging out and partying, all that is obviously uh, not part of the virtual format. But you're right, uh, as, with, as always, uh, you know, Politics does provide a lot of lessons to communicators, and uh, it's been interesting to see how they've done it. So, uh, I, I yeah. feel like the pre-recorded speeches um, in empty rooms, just some of them just seemed very odd. For example, like Kimberly Guilfoyle's uh, very impassioned speech, uh, it just it just seemed odd. I don't know if it would have seemed that weird. But <laughs> It, you know, as a normal in-person event, but um, you know, as we could see from the response from people on Twitter, it was it was mocked pretty widely. So, yeah, but I think that, sorry, I was just gonna say, I think that that's the point I was trying to make, right? Like, it's almost like they did, or they were, di- they are doing the format that they planned six months ago, and it it hasn't been tweaked or adapted to the current situation, right? Yeah, she was definitely. Sp- speaking in capital letters, shall we say, and, and that, <laughs> her big finish really needs a crowd there, doesn't it? Other, when it's met with complete silence, it doesn't quite work in the same way. The camera <laughs> planning out afterwards to an empty yeah. room just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But on the, other, on the other hand, uh, Governor Tim Scott and uh, Nikki Haley came over very well on the first night and really did, um, didn't do their reputations any harm at all. And they were very polished and very professional with some good messaging. So, you know, there's been some good things in both conferences. Um, I'm sure there will be some virtual elements in, in the next one in four years. Um, but I, I don't think anyone's going to want to completely virtual moving forward. Let's get on to the really important topic of the week, Diana. Starbucks has uh, already... <laughs> Pumpkin latte. What's going on? I really don't know. Um, so apparently, Starbucks and Dunkin'—they both have launched their or brought back their fall menus very early. Um, and 
uh, Starbucks actually would not comment on why they brought it back so much earlier. This is the 17th year that the pumpkin spice latte has been around, by the way. Um, but this is the earliest it's ever made a comeback for the fall. And so you, I took them. I'm sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, are you a fan of the pumpkin spice? Um, it's okay. I don't, I don't <laughs> run out the door to go buy it when it, when it comes back, but, um, you know, it's all right. I don't hate it. <laughs> what about Becky, you? Becky, uh, spice is not really a British thing, is it? Oh, it's becoming, yeah. it's becoming more so. I have a confession to you both. Come I've on. never tasted one. Ah, I've, I've literally never had one. So maybe it coming back early is an opportunity for me to, to have yeah. a go. Um, well, you're a, you're a techie. You you drink coffee all day, don't you? That's what you do, isn't it? I uh, I inadvertently gave up coffee at the beginning ah. of the year, which is a bad year to give up coffee. So impressive. <laughs> um, I'm impressed. It was it was entirely accidental, but but um, look, I, I I've got a suspicion that the motivation for bringing these things out a little bit early is that we're all just desperate for a bit of passing of time. Like yeah. you said at the top of this, Steve, like we've been in lockdown for six months and and like we, everyone just wants to race towards the end of the year because then it might be closer to all being over. And I think time doesn't really mean anything anymore, so why not bring it back and people are going to be excited about it? I feel like it's going to get to a point, though, where it's almost like just have it all year. Like, I mean, if, if this is going to come out any earlier, it's like just what's the point of it even being on a fall menu? I, I don't know. That's just my opinion. But uh, so anyway, I talked to um, Starbucks about the the launch of this. They said they actually started planning for this a year ago. Um, And it doesn't sound like the pandemic has affected it too much. They're just making sure that the, you know, in store, it's safe for the customers. Um, But they, uh, one interesting element to this campaign is they, they launched a hotline, um, one eight three three get fall, um, and I called the number, and it has options such as you know press one to hear flannel on repeat, which is just the guy repeating the word flannel, um, <laughs> and two to hear the sound of a hayride, and uh, you know things like that. So that was that was interesting. I'm glad to uh, see you're spending your days productively, Diana. Yes, I only spent an hour on that call. So <laughs> the word flannel, um, and then um, the so uh, they worked with uh, marketing agency Big Spaceship on that hotline, which launched on August twenty fourth, and then um, Edelman is uh, you know co created an an earned media strategy uh, to build excitement for the launch and, and raise awareness for their fall menu. And um, so, yeah, it sounds like they, even though it's it's been around since 2003, they're they're keeping things creative and fresh with their with the launch every year. Yeah, for um, sure. Well, it's, it's 89 degrees in New York today, so I'm not sure. <laughs> going for Perfect weather for a hot drink. <laughs> um, that is a good segue, Diana, into the next story, which is Edelman, and they've appointed their first black board member, which is something Richard Edelman promised he would do by the end of September. Talk us through it. That's right. Um, I think he was talking to you when he said that as well. He was, yes. He was. 
so yes, he kept the promise. Um, Deborah Elam Elam has joined um, Daniel J. Edelman Holdings as its first black board member. Um, Minardo Denardis, the former CEO of OMD Network, um, is also joining the board. Um, and Richard Edelman said the move is is the fulfillment of the commitment he made in mid June that they would have a board member, a black board member, by September. And Elam is president and CEO of business consulting firm Corporate Playbook, and she is an authority of on diversity and inclusion, according to Richard Edelman. Yeah, and she used to be at GE as well. Um, so he's made good on that promise, which is uh, excellent. Menardo Donatis is actually a real big hitter in the holding company world. So that's an interesting appointment too. And given that Edelman's a completely independent firm, and he'll bring some real experience of the holding company worlds in, in media and advertising especially. Um, so that's a smart appointment. Becky, obviously... Um, uh, diversity has been a big issue and um, you know Edelman we did a big analysis of all the top firms and you know a lot of them have got, got some work to do what's your attitude to that at source code and how do you ensure you, you've got a diverse team to uh, you know work with diverse customers yeah look we're in the same position as everyone else right our report card is not as strong as we would like it to be um, we made commitment very early on this summer to our team internally and um, externally that we were going to change that um, and change it not solely through uh, the appointment of more uh, more black um, and people of color um, employees on the team, but also looking at how we spend our dollars um, and where we spend our dollars. So we have uh, conducted an audit of all of our operational expenses and we are, the intention is that we will move, shift to uh, an agreed percentage of uh, spends basically with um, black and minority owned businesses um, by June next year. So we're trying to not just, you know, recruitment is part of this problem and it's a very important part of this problem. And, and we totally acknowledge that. But another part of this is like the transfer of wealth. Um, amongst communities and so we're trying to do to look at that as well Um, and then the other thing that I'd be remiss not to mention is that um, you know and we've been talking about it since the beginning of the year it just happened to be that it it became more timely Um, we launched the diversity marketing consortium um, earlier in the summer um, which is working with Harlem Capital to invest time, support, experience, and services, along with a consortium of other agencies to female and minority-owned businesses across the country to give them the leg up that they, you know, they often miss or they often um, don't have access to. Um, so we've committed to a spend over the next two years across the consortium of, of agencies. So um, I guess, you know, we're trying, to, we're trying to address it three ways. Increase the diversity of our own team, increase our investment in black and minority owned businesses um, and also help support those businesses from the ground up. 
Yeah, it's all good stuff. And that's something uh, not to be forgotten. Spending money with suppliers, whether it's production, you know, creative services with black owned businesses, that's a really great way to uh, improve things and, and uh, help the economy. So that's, that's all good stuff. Let's quickly wrap the last three stories, Diana. We're running a bit behind. So uh, Facebook C- CMO Antonio Lucio is stepping down. Uh, slightly surprising. Yeah, um, I mean, there is a lot happening at Facebook. Uh, yeah, so uh, he has only been there for two years, um, but and his and his last day at Facebook is September eighteenth. But he'll work through the end of twenty twenty to help the company find a successor. Um, he is a a strong diversity advocate, um, and he basically cited a challenging year for all and stated his desire to dedicate 100% of his time to diversity, inclusion, and equity. Um, and he noted that the world is in a historical inflection point regarding racial justice. So it'll be really interesting to see where he ends up next. Yeah, he's a real thought leader and he's led the charge for clients insisting that their agencies are diverse. Otherwise, they don't get his business. So uh, that is interesting that he made that move. And yeah, uh, you're right. Facebook is having an interesting time. Another company having an interesting time is TikTok and their CEO is stepping down after just three months, Diana. Yes. Um, so Kevin Mayer, uh, he is resigning as CEO um, and he's citing political pressure over recent weeks and uh, the impact this will have on the global role. Um, it looks like he, he wrote in a note to employees that he decided to leave after reviewing re- what recent changes to TikTok's corporate structure would mean for his post. Um, so it sounds like it's the, the role is turning into something that he did not sign up for. Um, and Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so well, his, yeah he- going to be filled by U.S. General Manager Vanessa Papas on an interim basis. Yeah. Yeah, he's spent 27 years at Disney and three months at TikTok. So, Becky, I, it's I, to me, that feels like a big blow to TikTok because I think they've – obviously, they've been in the news, they've been under fire, but they put – they actually turned the tables and and um, were suing the, you know, the government for – for trying to restrict their business. And that felt like a, a, a method of buying time, maybe till after the election, when who knows, there might be a different president. But this, does, this doesn't seem like a vote of confidence, does it, when the CEO, such a high-profile hire, steps down saying he couldn't really um, sort of uh, work on the agenda that he was originally hired for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it, it doesn't feel like a positive sign, does it? Um, no. I, I, and I think that... It's almost the least of their problems, though, at the minute from a from a, communi- a communications perspective, though, because if you think uh, not only do they have this to deal with, not only do they have the lawsuit with the current administration to deal with, um, you know, they they also have Instagram reels um, coming out to play, and we've seen what happens when when Instagram and Facebook try to take over an existing very popular app and take its place in the consumer psyche. So it, it feels like TikTok's got, got a real challenge on its hands. Yeah, it does. Although, Diana, you've done loads of stories recently where you know TikTok's been such an effective marketing tool, hasn't it? It really has. I mean, um, I think it was Chipotle. Just all they did was post a, a recipe for their, for their rice dish, and it got like 7 million views, which 
is unheard of on pretty much yeah. any other social network. So it'll be interesting to see if, if TikTok does go away, if these kind of results can be replicated on other things like Instagram reels or you know, true. competitors. Yeah, and, and to be honest, obviously Instagram's owned by Facebook. And I, I always think Facebook and, and, the, and are doing their best work when they're innovating. When they try and copy other people, I don't. I don't always think they get it right, and that's not. And it's not just them; it's anybody. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm not. I, you know, I'm not so sure that reels will necessarily. Instagram's an incredibly powerful channel as well, and uh, but we'll see. That's a whole topic for another show. I think the, the TikTok thing. Just finally, uh, Diana LG has uh, reawarded its uh, global AOR duties to a WPP consortium. Yes. Um, so they've retained WPP's LG1 multi-agency unit, which is comprised of Ogilvy and Hill and Knowlton strategies. Um, so they're continuing the relationship. It's been going on for 11 years. So um, they're all still happy together. Um, it sounds like uh, I talked to Ken Hong, from, uh, who's the LG Electronics Senior Director of Global Corporate Communications. And he said that um, actually LG1 will probably have more responsibilities this year because they're trying new things. They can't just call journalists to events or attend trade shows. So um, they're hoping LG1 will help them come up with creative ways to engage audiences. And that might be digital or one-on-one kind of situations. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes wonder why other companies bother pitching for this because he seems to review it every two years and go back to Ogilvy and H&K. So it must be frustrating for the other holding <laughs> to take a view on whether to even bother, right? Because it, yeah, it, that's it, true. I don't know if he's just driving down the price or it's a procurement exercise. I don't know. Yeah, he did say nine agencies were invited to pitch. Yeah, there so, you go. Yeah, but yeah, it's All right. interesting. All right. Well, listen, thank you. We've run out of time, unfortunately. Thanks, Becky, for joining us. Great to chat and uh, continue. Success at Source Code. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, very much. So, thank you, Diana. Thank uh, you. Good show with you. Uh, um, yeah, Frank will be back next week, but uh, always a pleasure to hang out with Diana. Um, but that's all we've got time for. Just before we go, quick update on our events. Um, PR Week's events have all gone virtual, of course, for the rest of the year. So, our Hall of Fame takes place on the 17th of September. So look out for that. It's going to be a, a fantastic event. Purpose Awards are on the 14th of October, being given out virtually during our PR Decoded Conference, which runs from the 13th to the 15th. It's got a brilliant lineup of content, speakers and panels for that. And, and of course, the Purpose Awards. The shortlist came out a couple of weeks ago. And 40 Under 40, one of the most popular things we do. And Becky, you're... you're uh, partner greg is going to be honored in that list on on the 29th of october so it's a shame we can't share a drink but i'm sure you'll be doing a virtual uh, celebration we will we'll be toasting him i definitely hope so so yeah but that's all we got time for we'll see you next time on the pr week 